brought to you by Anchor. Anchor is the easiest way to make your podcast. You can create, distribute, and monetize your content right from your phone. Anchor is completely free to use with no storage limits, no trial period, and no strings attached. Easily distribute your podcast to every major podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I even use Anchor for my podcast, so download the app today or visit anchor.fm. Welcome to the Three Course Convo Podcast, where we serve you three of the hottest topics in the food world. I am your host, Paul O. Mims. This is episode two of the podcast, and today we're going to be talking about recalling to rebranding. But you know, first I'd like to start off each episode with an honorable mention or shout out. Since Black Friday just ended and we're approaching Cyber Monday... Um, you guys are probably looking for those gifts to give for Christmas to family members, some friends, yada, yada. Um, Instapot just released a line of Star Wars branded Instapots. So if you're interested in Star Wars, or you know, family members who love Star Wars, please check them out on Amazon or any other stores that are online. Um, they look really cool. So if you don't know what Instapots are, Instapots are these great um, vessels that you put in your kitchen. They steam, they air fry, they are a rice cooker, they're crock pots, and they're pressure cookers. So they can cook things very instantly, hence the name Instapot. So check those out today. Once again, this is episode two, and let's get into our courses. Okay, first courses are usually salads, right? Well, this topic is very literal. Girl, romaine lettuce is back at it again. The CDC has issued a safety alert for romaine lettuce harvested in Salinas, California. E. coli is back. 67 people have been reported sick from 19 different states. So stores and consumers are advised to not sell or eat any romaine lettuce from that region. That includes heads of lettuce and pre-cut ones in salad mixes. This is not this is not it though, guys. Over 500,000 pounds of pork has been recalled as well due to not being inspected. These pork products were not inspected by the USDA. Morris Meat Company was one of the companies found to not have been inspected and they have recalled their products. This includes pork loins, pork chops and other pork pre-cooked products. Any pork product with an establishment number of 18267, I repeat, 18267, is subject to a recall. That's not all! Kraft has recalled over 9,000 Breakstone cottage cheeses due to plastic being found among the curds. Oh, I am not done. Hannaford has recalled Fuji sushi products due to listeria concerns. And also, Simmons prepared foods have recalled over 2 million pounds of poultry products that may be contaminated with metal. And last but not least, Millstream Corp has recalled cold smoked salmon because Clostridium botulinum was found. This bacteria causes botulism, which can be fatal. Y'all better watch out, (sighs) y'all. Wow. All this shit around Thanksgiving. I mean, contamination is subject to happen on a massive scale. We have to be aware of that. 
and we don't know what type of irrigation systems farms are using for these lettuce farms. They could be coming from contaminated water, which is a huge source and main source for E. coli outbreaks. How in the hell did you miss an inspection? That's what I want to know. How did you miss an inspection? And apparently, this is this is from products from certain pork companies that were lasting, um, that goes back until 2017, um, until now. So, I'm not understanding that. I'm just not understanding that. It's just partly due to the government shutdown that happened recently, and there were a lack of inspections. That was a concern. I remember reading something about that. Um, I just don't understand. Please, if someone who's an expert in the meatpacking industry, please let me know why that happened. Food system transparency is non-existent in this country, and there's so much stuff we do not know about. Also, these big companies do not want the average consumer to know these behind-the-scenes information. Guys, just be careful. Be very, very careful on what products you are buying and eating, and literally, literally, literally listen to your gut. I'm telling you. Pun intended. Period. Listen to your gut. Because... You don't want to mess with botulism, you don't want to mess with listeria, and you don't want to mess with E. coli. Um, e. coli is probably the um, less lesser of the evils between the three I just mentioned, but you still want to be very careful. Don't buy that romaine lettuce. Stick to your spinach and arugula, uh, whatever. Don't buy that romaine lettuce. Also, um, make sure... People, make sure you wash your produce. Wash, wash, wash your produce. Especially if you're eating it raw. If you're buying pre-cut vegetables in bags or salad mixes, still wash it. Still rinse it. Because you never know. Like, shit like this can happen. You don't know. Please, 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 please practice good food safety at home as well. Um, It's just super, super, super important, guys. So that's our first course. And please let me know what you guys think about this. And, you know, outbreaks are going to happen. I just wish that it happened less. But, you know, things happen. Um, We have to be, you know, since the food world, our food system has um, been more distant to the table and what we actually see every single day. Um, these things can happen. We don't know what's going on. So please, please be aware of what's going on. And, um, yeah, don't eat that romaine lettuce today or this week, guys. Since we are on the topic of food recalls, I wanted to take this moment in our first course to go over a simple guide into handling food recalls within your home. So this is for all the consumers who have recently found out that there's a recall or found out on the news that there's something in their actual fridge that needs to be tossed out. So one of the great things you can do as a consumer is learn how to educate yourself about what's going on. So most food recalls are actually, contrary to popular belief, are not resulting in con- bacterial contamination. So that includes E. coli or listeria, etc. So those are some of the things that you usually find in food recalls. Actually, majority of food recalls are due to what we call foreign objects. So that includes like metal or plastic. So before in the first course, we mentioned about that cottage cheese with the plastic within the curds. And we talked about those poultry products that were recalled with the metal that was found, metal found in the chicken products. 
So that's one thing you need to know about that. So most are actually due to foreign objects and not bacterial contamination, but also be on the lookout because we've been having a lot of bacterial contaminated foods recently. This is not the first time we've seen romaine lettuce have the E. coli outbreak. This happened just over a year and a half ago. Um, also be aware, be up to date. You can go onto the USDA um, website to find out any other food recalls or anything else that you may think um, you want to see that it's a recall and that's actually advice not to eat at that moment. So please, please, please educate yourself as much as you can. Be on the lookout. And that's such a precautionary measure to have when you're dealing with food recalls. Second, do not eat the food. So even if it's people have announced a recall as precautionary measure, um, and they're not really sure what was actually found, still do not eat the food. Do not eat the food at all. It's better to just avoid it and know you're safe because you're avoiding it at all costs. Also, this, the third step is do not open the food. I know some people are uh, tempted to open up food and to smell it or see what's going on. Um, they want to they see if there's metal in it that they see themselves. Actually, just do not open the food. It's advice not to open it. Just leave it closed. Um, it's better this way. You won't have anything spill or contaminate anything else in your kitchen. Um, it's just best to just leave it closed at all times. Throw out the food immediately. So you always want to throw out this food immediately from your fridge. It's great to actually wrap it in some wrap or some plastic or anything else several times before you actually throw it away in your trash. Um, just make sure you wrap those things up before you just throw it away. Also, it's great to clean your kitchen. Once you have thrown away all of the foods that have been recalled that you want to get rid of in your fridge, clean your kitchen. Use those Lysol wipes. Use whatever you use to clean the kitchen to get rid of that bacterial infections or any bacteria in your house. Make sure you clean your kitchen. And also keep tabs on what's any future food recalls. Like I said, go on to the USDA website um, the FDA website to find out those recalls or anything else that you may think you want to know about any future recalls. And those are just some guides to help you with dealing with food recalls at home. Um, this is something you don't want to mess with. And it's really, really important that you follow these guidelines and to be proactive and to be quick with getting rid of the recalled food. Our second course is Juicy tender, and pretty heavy. The other day, I was listening to a podcast or a recording of a radio segment, and it was with the Kojo Namdi Show on WAMU 88.5, which is an NPR station in Washington, D.C. The segment was, was about the lack of diversity in food criticism in D.C. and around the country. Food critics in major cities are writers or journalists who seek restaurants and rate them. It is based on the food that is on the plate, the service, and the overall ambiance. Food critics, in my opinion, are different than food writers. A food writer may go deeper or beyond the plate of food. They tend to write about systems, culture, and social justice surrounding food. I would say all food critics are food writers, but not all food writers are food critics. If you are familiar with the food critics in your own city, you may know the top restaurants to visit based on their recommendations. Who criticizes, you ask? Well, it is usually white men. You may know them. Pete Wells from the New York Times, Craig LeBan from the Philadelphia Inquirer, 
Phil Vitell from the Chicago Tribune, Tom Sietsima, sorry if I mispronounced the last name, from the Washington Post, and the late Jonathan Gold from the LA Times. In a diverse city such as Chicago, LA, New York, Philadelphia, and DC, the critics are white men. That is what this radio segment was all about. It was a discussion on the lack of diversity in food criticism. Joining the hosts were an array of professionals in the food world, including writers, bloggers, and chefs. I was excited to hear the perspectives of these professionals of color talking about the issue at hand. As a food writer myself, I have come to realize a lot of food criticism in food writing from major publications lack people of color. Why would they leave out such a dynamic and refreshing view from the publication? A black person's food perspective is different than a white person's. A Hispanic person's perspective is different than an Asian person's. You are introduced to so many more new flavors, restaurants, with diverse critics. You also get to learn about the service people of color experience in restaurants compared to their white counterparts. One example was a restaurant in D.C. that had a rule about taking diners' IDs until the end of the meal to make sure that the bill was paid. Unfortunately, this rule disproportionately only applied to diners of color. There are so many more voices in the food medium that can bring so much to the table, pun intended. Like the show explained, food criticism is a systematic institution. Like it or not, it is. There's so much to do. Let's talk about this. You know, I'm going to bring up a story that happened um, pretty recently. I remember going to a cookbook Q&A and I was talking to the food writer. Um, I'm not going to mention the name. And she was telling me how she rarely sees people of color in the food writing world and especially queer people of color. And as I was telling her about, you know, my aspirations of becoming a food writer, she was explaining all of the nuances and all the things that, you know, um, can work and how actually hard it is to make it into that world. The lack of diversity is something I always had on my radar for quite some time. Being a fan of food magazines and reading all types of food articles, I knew I wanted to be part of that world. And in 2018, I was very fortunate enough to attend the James Beard Media Awards. Seeing my heroes in one room was surreal, and I couldn't contain myself. I also witnessed history as Michael Twitty became the first Black man to win Book of the Year. But one thing I noticed was not seeing many people of color in the room or winning. It was the same the next year. So as I was going to the James Beard Media Awards and, you know, witnessing history and, you know, really getting inspired uh, by these writers and these voices uh, for food and, you know, the food culture and the food world, one thing that really struck my mind was visibility and how it is so important to be visible in any medium in our world, any medium in our country. A country that's supposedly a melting pot, we don't tend to see... Um, visible people from different cultures or visible people from different, you know, perspectives. Um, and a lot of these institutions, including food criticism, is an example. One of those food critics, Craig LeBan, um, who writes for the Philadelphia Inquirer, um, is a known name, and I'm pretty sure he's, he's pretty known around the whole food writing world. Um, I actually took his class in grad school about food writing and food blogging. And um, I was really excited to take his class because it was 
Craig LeBan, um, you know, um, this big, you know, big visible voice for Philadelphia and the critic for Philadelphia. So I was super excited um, to take his course. And it mainly was focusing on food blogging, but it had a little bit of food writing, you know, instruction in it as well. Actually, before this class, I actually didn't like food blogs. And the reason why I didn't like food blogs because I thought that the market for food blogs was very saturated. Um, and I, I, I just didn't get into it. Um, I'd rather read articles or in food magazines or newspapers, etc. So, but I was still excited to be in Craig LeBan's class. Um, it was 10 weeks and uh, we were allowed to choose a topic um, to base our blog on, and I chose um, a topic about street food um, and how a lot of these street foods that we tend to eat from around the world have been, you know, sort of appropriated and, you know, not really known how these foods came to be in their actual histories and background of them. So I chose a very complicated topic, and other people talked about, you know, they had a blog about sandwiches in Philadelphia breakfast in Philadelphia, you know, things, singular subjects and something that, you know, was a lot easier. And I had to choose something complicated because I'm fucking Paul and I had to choose something complicated. But anyway, I ended up getting an A minus in that class, um, which that can be another story for later about my disdain for that grade. But, you know, I digress. But um, working... I guess being a student of Craig LeBan, I quickly realized, you know, sort of the nuances of the food writing and food critic world. And um, he maintains um, this persona of being um, not seen. You don't really, he doesn't show his face. A lot of people at, you know, Drexel University where he taught um, know his face, of course. And a lot of people in the food world know his face and know what he looks like. But he has, he doesn't show his face. So that's one of his shticks. Um, and a lot of food critics actually do that because they don't want to be known when they're critiquing a restaurant, which, okay, I get. Um, so I don't know, that little story just made me think about, you know, me being introduced into the food critic world and learning a lot more about it and, you know, from a professional and a professional writer like Craig LeBan. And, um, that brings me to a point of how I wanted to be in the food writing world. And, you know, I have no background in journalism at all. I didn't study journalism. I studied dietetics in undergrad, uh, which was mainly about clinical nutrition. I was going to be a registered dietitian. I opted out of that. Um, I finished the program, graduated, but I decided not to go on to the internship and to sit for the state exam. So I went to grad school and I studied. Um, it was a uh, an interesting program where I combined food science, culinary application, and food studies. So um, it was a really holistic program. I can get into more nuances about that program at a later date. I digress again. So, um, but yeah, I don't have any journalism background, but I always knew that I wanted to be a food writer, and I was so obsessed with learning about how it's done. So I learned a lot about how you need to use your senses to talk about food, and talking about food is actually can be an art. Um, but one of the things I've noticed when I would like, you know, go online and find all these mediums and find all these publications like Bon Appetit, um, Saveur, uh, all these magazines and, you know, the Philadelphia Inquirer, New York Times is that it was, I wasn't, weren't seeing people that look like me. Um, 
I really wasn't. And especially for someone who dreams of working for a major publication, I was really heartbroken to not see people that look like me or having other voices or people of color talk about the same stuff. And I'm pretty sure there are a lot of people who are knowledgeable about food who can write their ass off about food, let me tell you. But I wasn't seeing that. And I was really heartbreaking. It was really frustrating to not see that. Coming from a gay black man like myself, you know, visibility, like I said, is very important. And I hope one day I can break in and, you know, be visible for someone, that young black queer boy who, or whoever, doesn't even have to be queer, person of color can see themselves in food writing and feel like, oh, I see someone. I know what's possible. Like Billy Porter says, dream the impossible. I'm used to dreaming things that I've seen before. I wasn't dreaming the impossible. And I feel like with the food writing world, that's the same case. Um... So I was really interested in this, uh, the radio segment, and this man called in, and he was talking about, he made a comment, and he said that he doesn't understand the need for having people of color write or having different races write for a publication because he finds it trivial, and actually he said, quote, and he quote, um, he find it racist. Why are we so obsessed with race and why are we so obsessed with skin color when there's so... He actually said there's so many colors and um, perspectives that one can have with food and there's so many different foods. So why are we so obsessed with color and skin tone? And one of the chefs who was um, with the host of that radio segment replied and said, okay, since you said, why are we so obsessed with skin color and, you know, food can be so many different things, why are the critics only white, though? Which was valid. And, you know, I whole honestly disagreed with that man calling and saying it was racist. Absolutely, it's not racist. Like, I think he should really look up the word racist before he mentions that on a radio station. But, you know, um, I really had a problem with his comment. Um... So I, and the thing is why I have such a problem with this because are you justifying that we shouldn't be, you know, upset about that white men are the only people criticizing food or the ones we see in food publications? If, if you don't have any problem with skin color, why is it a problem that you, why do you have a problem with us wanting people of color in there? If there's such a, there's not a such problem. So if there was a person of color, you know, being food critics in these cities, it shouldn't be a problem to you then. It it just it was complicated, and I I didn't dis, I didn't agree with his statement. And um, you know I think the people who were on the panel who were talking the radio segment did a good job of um, you know talking with him and trying to justify what is going on. And like one of the women said, who was a food blogger, she says as a Puerto Rican from upstate New York, um, perspectives are different. And, you know, like I said before, a black person's perspective is different than a white person's perspective. Why wouldn't you like to have a, a, a different perspective of food critic that you had no idea was going on to begin with? Because we have different perspectives in this country. I perceive food a different way than my white counterpart. Or I, I perceive restaurants a different way. Or maybe I know some form of restaurant or a different restaurant than a different food critic might know based on my cultural background people of color have also different cultural backgrounds that they can bring to the table. It's not just skin color. It's about cultural relevance, right? So I think that's something that we, it can be a bigger conversation about. Um, 
there is a lack of color and food criticism and food writing, and I wish that would change. Hopefully, we're moving into a direction where it can change. I have faith in my, you know, my heroes like Michael Twitty, um, Jessica Harris, who just was recently inducted into the James Beard um, Hall of Fame because she's a pro, uh, she's a prolific food writer and her food historian. Um, all these people, you know, not just black people, you know. Um, Samin Nasrat, um, you know, all these people who, you know, are we're now seeing. And I'm really glad that since Jonathan Gold, the late Jonathan Gold, rest in peace, um, has, you know, he's no longer with us, unfortunately. The LA Times have changed a lot of their criteria, and they, I think they hired um, more diverse um, staff for writing for food criticism in their newspaper. So um, I think we can move in the right direction. I hope Philadelphia moves in the right direction. I like to see more people of color, um, more women. Um, and girl, if I see a person of color who's a woman, double whammy, critiquing food, that I, hands down, that'll be great. So let me know what you guys think about that. And I think food criticism is something that we really take for granted and we should reevaluate what's going on. And honestly, maybe we could rebrand it in look at the bigger picture of why we do not have a diverse writing staff. Our third and final course is something light and cheerful. It's all about sharing cultural traditions around the world through cooking. And who was facilitating this, you ask? Airbnb is. Yes, Airbnb just introduced cooking as one of their experiences. If you do not know about Airbnb experiences, they are activities hosted by locals inside homes. The new experience category, essentially a rebranding of their old food and beverage um, category or activity they used to have on their platform. Um, And the food and drink um, experience they used to have actually was a huge success. And in 2018, it has grown over 160%. This time around, this rebranding of that experience, it focused directly and specifically on cooking. Airbnb says uh, cooking experiences are hosted by families, farmers, pastry chefs, or other locals. And you would get to learn their recipes and cook with them and learn about their traditions and their background stories or personal stories through cooking which is basically what cooking and food is all about. You know, food is a lot more than a biological necessity. Um, Now Airbnb Airbnb has this experience launched, and you can choose over 3,000 cooking experiences in 75 countries. That's a lot. I like that. And their CEO just recently, um, any quote, we have realized that sharing a meal is a key that unlocks culture and fosters connection. Um, We want to bring back the tradition of people coming together to make and share meals, and through this, help preserve unique recipes that are shared within family kitchens around the world. So that was a quote that he gave to, um, I believe, USA Today. I can't remember. Um, But I like this idea. I think this is a great idea, Um, especially for people who are travelers. 
you know, for those who travel a lot, you know, tr you want to be less of a tourist as much as you can. You want to seem like you're not a tourist. You want to be ingrained in their culture. So a lot of people choose Airbnbs instead of hotels um, to really feel like a local, right? Um, I mean, of course, there's always that, you know, room room of like, you'll always be a, not a tourist and not a local because... Pretty sure people in that area don't even know who they are. Like, who is this kid coming to this Airbnb? I know this is not my neighbor. But anyway, it's it's a helpful, helpful way to be more ingrained into the local culture by using Airbnb. I use Airbnb. Um, I just recently came from Europe, and um, I used Airbnb. And I had this little cute studiette in Paris, which was, like, a few blocks away from the Eiffel Tower. It was beautiful. It was traditionally French. It was uh, quintessential French, and I loved it. It wasn't too modern. It was literally what you expect to see in a French apartment. So I love Airbnb. I think it's a great platform. Um, I think this experience is really cool. Uh, I've never did the, the old food and drink experience with Airbnb, but I definitely would try the cooking since I will be traveling to Mexico City um, early next year in 2020. Uh, shout out to people who are in Mexico City. I'm so excited to go there. Um, I'm really excited to t eat the wonderful food from Mexico City, the wonderful street food culture of Mexico City. It's just wonderful. And shout out to my sister, uh, Shira, who runs Black Girl World Traveler podcast. She will be traveling with me. Um, we made an agreement that she can act as my interpreter or translator and I can be her photographer. And she she's going to photograph some stuff for me too, so it's a double whammy. Um, so I'm really excited. She's excited. We're going to have a blast in Mexico City. And maybe I'll talk to her about this new um, Airbnb experience, this cooking experience, because I think it's a wonderful idea. We can have so much fun with that. She loves to cook. I love to cook. It'll be so great. And I'm so excited for that. And I think this is just a wonderful way to really learn about someone's culture is through um, this cooking experience. And I applaud Airbnb for rolling this out. And yeah, I think that's great. And that's our third and final course, guys. I'd love to want to end it with, you know, something that's lighter, more fun and, and more, you know, um, cool to really realize what's going on in our food world. So that's our third course, guys. And there you have it, folks. That was episode two of the Three Course Convo podcast. You can listen to this episode and other episodes on Spotify. You can also find it on my website, mrpaulomims.com. That's M-R-P-A-U-L-O-M-I-M-S.com. Thank you for listening, and you can find me on social media at Mr. Paul O'Mims on Twitter and Instagram. Peace out.